Uh, I am thankful to be here tonight and to open the Word of God with you guys. It is truly one of my favorite points in the week, and so I'm grateful that we get to study God's Word together and to look at the truth uh, within. As we begin, I, I want to begin with a, a question, a situation. I wonder if there's been a time that you've been caught up in a storm unprepared. If you're from a place other than Southern California, this may have happened to you before, for real. Maybe in the middle of nowhere and you get caught and you're not ready and your gas light is on and uh, you don't know how to get back home. Even so, maybe if you're an Angelino, you've still had this experience, but maybe a different kind of the same experience. Imagine a light sprinkle that we're going to call a storm. It started and you're at Jan's steps and so you think out of uh, your notebook computer and your spiral notebook and your other prayer journal notebook, which one should you hold over your head? Or, or maybe you choose your 33B book because talking about value here uh, and you hold it over your head as you shuffle back all the way to, to Sproul. And yes, it's pronounced Sproul, not Sproul. Uh, for those of you R.C. Sproul fans. Maybe instead you duck underneath the Daily Bruin stand and realize there's no top to that thing, or you are fortunate enough to be able to book it to Powell. Uh, but inevitably, and in any of these situations, and you are, at least by L.A. standards, soaking wet. At least the version of the story you tell now, Right? When you and I face storms, the storms of life, we likewise improvise shelter. We likewise run to shelter. Whether it's a trial, perhaps a personal health issue, or it's a struggle that you are having now with sin, or it's a family situation that you can't tell many, too many people about. Or maybe it's a spiritually dry week that then turns into a month, that then turns into a, a season. Or it's that 19-unit quarter of extreme isolation spent in the little corner of the research library, and you just feel so alone. There are situations and seasons that make us doubt, that make us wonder whether sometimes we can weather the storm and whether we're going to make it to the other side and so to deal with these storms we improvise we distract ourselves out of having to deal with whatever the trial of the trouble is we reality tv or we be real our way out of the reality of having to deal with whatever it is the storm that we're facing Maybe instead of improvising your way out of this uh, trial, you are the type to run to shelter. And so you vent and complain in the living room to your roommates, and it feels good for moments. Uh, or maybe you Google what might help your problem, and you type the word Bible at the end of it. Maybe you're the type to immerse yourself in sad boy music to help you feel heard and seen by your favorite artist. 
You see, in the flurry of the storms of life, the single verse, the one verse we're going to look at tonight in Philippians, Philippians 1 verse 6, is an anchor for our hearts. It is a verse full of truth that calms the soul. Uh, When your mind is racing and your heart is raging and your thoughts are wandering, Philippians 1 verse 6 is steady truth that withstands storm after storm after storm in life. Uh, When you don't know where to turn or you aren't sure what's next, when when there's a thick fog over what God might be doing in the situation you're in, when providence seems counterintuitive in your life, and there's doubt in your mind of God's goodness to you. Philippians 1.6 is a shelter of truth to run to, storm after storm. You see, in a world so full of bus shelters and waterproof rain jackets that leave you wet and umbrellas that flip inside out so easily. All these things that are our cheap self-prescribed solutions and this world quick fixes for our trials that cannot withstand the constant battering of the storms of life. Philippians 1.6 is a rock-solid bunker a mile beneath the surface one that is itself rooted way down deep in the solid providence and goodness and faithfulness of God so if you haven't turned there turn to Philippians chapter 1 and we'll look just at this one verse Philippians 1 verse 6 Philippians 1 verse 6 Paul's continuing his expression of joy and thankfulness to God on behalf of the Philippians and in light of the Philippians' testimony. And in verse 6, he says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's read the word of the living God. Father, thank you for this truth. Instill it in our hearts, illuminate our minds tonight uh, to trust you from beginning to end. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we'll see that the believer's confidence must be in God alone, whose work in our lives is from beginning to end. The believer's confidence must be Be in God alone, whose work in our lives is from beginning to end. And we'll look at this amazing truth in three simple parts. And really, we're just dividing the verse into three parts. And the first part is the believer's confidence. The believer's confidence. In this verse, Paul is confident. He is sure Some translations say, I am convinced of this. What is the nature of this confidence? The believer's confidence. Normally, if you think of the word confidence, I think you think of pride, or you think of someone who's cocky, or sure of themselves, confident in their athletic abilities. I see you. 
deadlifters, right? Ballers. Soccer players. Sorry, futsal season. Futsal players. You think of someone who's sure about how they can handle their body and accomplish a goal as a team. Maybe you think of someone who's confident about their social skills or their smarts. I mean, at dinner, they bring out the iPad and start doing equations. They want to show you they got this thing down. They're sure of themselves. Sometimes, though, confidence can be in someone or something else like your sports team or your 45-year-old quarterback or that homie that you know will bring your charger just in time for your, your computer to not run out of juice. Maybe it's simpler things in life like the bus schedule and so you cut it real close every day. Or you're sure, you're confident, the lab meeting is going to be canceled again. Well, the confidence we see here in Philippians 1, verse 6, obviously, is fundamentally different. But why is that? Because it is confidence not in one's self or even in others. This is confidence in God himself. Now, if you look at this verse, you could say, if you look at the grammar and the logic of it, and if you know Greek and you're a seminard, you could see that Paul's actually confident in, and there's a blank space there. There's no object to his confidence, grammatically speaking. If anything, he's sure that the work in this verse would be finished. He's sure that the work will be completed. But ultimately, who is behind this work? What exactly is Paul convinced of? Paul's confidence in this verse, the believer's confidence from this verse, is that God, who started this work in the Philippian believers, will also finish that good work. Paul is sure that this good work will be finished because he is confident, in other words, in God himself. He's confident in the faithful, covenant-keeping God whose promises are unbreakable. He is confident in the creator and sustainer of all things who is the cattle on a thousand hills. He is confident in the Alpha and the Omega whose very existence is from eternity past to eternity future. He is confident in the great I Am who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, it's important to remember that Paul, as he writes this great epistle, he's not sitting in Haines 39. He is in a Roman prison cell. And he's in that prison cell because of the gospel. He's in that prison cell because he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ to other people and they didn't like it. And so from a human perspective, this should make no sense to him to say this. He, he should, we would think, if we were to give him some advice, Paul, you should be trying to get this to add up. You should be scheming how to get out of your situation. Yet somehow Paul is driven back to his confidence in God. In a situation where he should be questioning and thinking other and scheming and doing anything but 
being confident in God, Paul brings out what he is confident in, that God will see him in the Philippian believers and believers of all times and places and ages through to the end. And that is his hope. See, perhaps he calls to mind the grace and peace he and you and I have with God. He's reminded that that grace and peace, as we saw last time, that is God wrought. Or as he thinks of the gospel partnership he's had with the Philippian church, uh, and that you and I have with all believers in one another, he's reminded even that is God's good work. And so for Paul, this confidence in God is the, the bedrock of his joy and his gratitude that we've seen in the last few verses and we'll see again in the next few. That this confidence is what allows him to say, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. This is similar to David's confidence in Psalm 62 as he was being pursued even unto death by his own son, Absalom. Imagine something not making sense. It's your son chasing you down to kill you. And yet David writes there, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And then he turns the script and says to the people of God, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Or consider Psalm 20, David also. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is the believer's confidence in God and God alone, a trust that extends beyond the point of salvation and into the deepest and darkest corners of life. This in Philippians 1.6 is a purposeful exercising of faith in God in the face of trial. I wonder how you found your favorite restaurant. Unless you were cool enough to be one of those people that just had enough money to stumble upon it off the street. You probably were recommended by a foodie friend or by Yelp, like the rest of us. As you've gone back to that restaurant and enjoyed the food and made memories with your friends, like at Olive Garden or whatever your else establishment of choice is, amen, you no longer go to that restaurant based on recommendation. You see, what began as the testimony of others, useful, funny, or cool, is now a distant memory. This restaurant is your spot now. You know the wait staff, and eventually, of course, they know exactly what you want when you walk in. And then finally, there's that moment. You meet the chef. We'll call him Chris. And suddenly, it's not just that the food is good, it's that the chef is good. 
The food he happens to make is always awesome. He's got chef's Midas touch. But your favorite restaurant is your favorite restaurant, not because anymore someone recommended it to you, or even because medium rare is always medium rare, or the fries are just crispy enough, or because the fermentation is fermenty. Your favorite restaurant is your favorite restaurant because of the chef. Because whatever he's doing, the chef always does good work. It's who he is. He just, it's what he does. There's, there's no distinction between who he is and what he does. He just, he, he makes good food. It's, it's that's, that's my guy. Here in Philippians 1.6, the believer's confidence is like that. It's in God, and from beginning to end, he does all things well. He will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so no matter the circumstance or care, we as believers ought to be confident in God and in God alone. That is the believer's confidence. Secondly, in this text, we see not only the believer's confidence, we see the work commenced. The work commenced. Let's consider the next portion of this verse, the good work in Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. A good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a work that Paul says here, God has begun in us. It's past tense in a sense. So God, the creator and sustainer of all things, has worked in us in some way, in Philippians 1.6, and this work, Paul assesses, that God has begun, has the imprint of his goodness on it. The goodness of God is in everything he does. He does all things well. All of his work is like what we see in creation. Think of Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God's good works can be seen all throughout Scripture, not just in his creative work we know prominent examples of God's goodness in, in his work, specifically to his people Israel. Think of how he delivered them from Egypt and then led them through the wilderness and forgave them and restored them and preserved them time and time again despite their rebellion against him. Uh, turn over to Psalm 145 and uh, we see that the psalmist rejoice in God's Good, goodness and kindness in his works, his deeds for Israel, God's people. Psalm 145. I don't like to read parts of Psalms, but we have to in this long psalm. Look at Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. 
They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. You see, this psalm echoes the truth that we see out, see throughout the word of God, that the good work that God does, no matter what it is, it is inextricably linked to his own goodness in himself. Consider James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, God is good in all he does and when he works in his people, as we see in Philippians 1.6, he gives good gifts and he abounds in steadfast love. And the good work in Philippians 1.6 is no different. This is God's good work begun in the Philippians, and God's good work begun in you, and God's good work begun in me. And this work began at salvation. Think about Lydia's conversion in Acts 16 that we looked at. It said there, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Or consider the Philippian jailer's conversion later in that chapter. God used a literal earthquake to grab his attention and save his whole household and get a hold of his heart. Think of your own story. Think of how you got saved if you're in Christ. God used people, probably. If you're like me, it was your mom or... Other people, it's their roommate. For a lot of people, it's their youth pastor. Sometimes it's a pastor on YouTube. God used people. And God used the power of his word in some way. Maybe it was just one verse. Maybe it was the book of John. Maybe it was the book of 1 John. God used people in his word. And all of that... Nothing that you could even see. God accomplished all of that in Christ and applied it to you by grace through faith. God worked in your salvation. You were dead in your sin and He raised you miraculously to life. Consider John 3. It's a different picture. Not dead to alive, but not born to born. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a self-made religious man he went to church every sunday so to speak he was in a small group of pharisees and jesus tells him you must be born again you must be born again he speaks of the new birth that by the cleansing of sin and the power of the spirit those who come to saving faith must be 
born again. They have nothing to do with it in and of themselves other than being brought forth. James 1, the next verse, 118, after the one we just read, says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Ephesians speaks so much of this gospel grace. In fact, Ephesians 1, before 2 even comes and tells us about grace through faith, Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This is God's good work in the lives of His people, saving them from the pit of hell, sanctifying you to be His own, separate and called out from the world. But if we're careful, we need to look at Philippians 1.6 and realize that this good work in Philippians 1.6 isn't simply just that. It isn't simply just the work of salvation. Consider Philippians 1.6 again. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, this good work in Philippians 1.6 isn't just the objective spiritual reality of salvation. This isn't just salvation won for us, given to us. This is God's work. Look again there at verse 6. Not just, it's not a good work for you. This is a good work in you. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Friends, that preposition, in, is oh so important. You see, this is the personal, the, the hands-on and ongoing work of God in your life if you are in Christ. This is the gospel coming to fruition in you, not just given to you to believe like a set of facts, and not just at salvation in sort of a one-time way, but it's also God's continuing work in your life every day. John Piper explains this concept this way, and excuse his terminology, this is pre-COVID Piper. He says, God's good work in this verse is not like an inoculation that you got when you were six. This good work is God's ongoing work in your life, more like divine dialysis or therapy. You see, God's work is not a one-time inoculation, it is like divine dialysis. It's ongoing. You need to keep going in for it. And the analogy stops there. It's therapy. It's ongoing. God began a good work in you at salvation, and he is continuing that good work even today, even now. I ask people a lot, what makes you sure you are saved? How can you look me in the eye and tell me I know that I'm going to heaven someday? I know Jesus is my Savior. How do you know you're saved? And a whole lot of good and godly and reformed people say, 
Matt, because of the grace of God in my life and the righteousness of Christ, nothing of my own. And you would be right to say that. Amen and amen. But there are a few people who wisely and humbly say, Matt, because of God's grace in my life, indeed, and the righteousness of Christ, and nothing of my own, but also because I have been able to see God work in my life, and here are some ways that my life has changed, and I see evidences of God's grace all over my life. You see, Grace on Campus, if you are in Christ, this is your existence, this is your life. You have experienced the grace of God in his good work of saving you, yes indeed, but also, that was only the beginning of God's good work in you. He is transforming you into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, and that is God's good work in you. He is working in you to put off the old man and put on the new, and that is God's good work in you. He is growing you in abundantly the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control that is the fruit of the spirit and that is God's good work in you he's keeping you through the inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you by his power first Peter says you are being guarded through faith for our salvation ready to be real revealed in the last time and that is God's good work in you he is sustaining you through the abiding power of the vine that is Christ. And as a branch of that true vine, you will bear much fruit. That is God's good work in you. God's abounding in love for you and in turn growing you in your love for Him and for others around you. And that is God's good work in you. God's good fingerprints are all over your life. And if you can believe it, there's more to come. What a sweet truth. You see, no matter how stagnant you may seem at times, no matter how you feel tonight about how you're doing with your Bible reading or your praying, no matter what you face, trial or trouble that may seem so out of your hands, if you are His, Philippians 1.6 tells us he has begun a good work and is continuing that good work in you. We see a third truth in this passage that helps us round out the believer's confidence here in Philippians 1.6 and it's very simply the work completed. The work completed. We see the believer's confidence and then the work commenced and now the work completed there's one final piece to this puzzle and i'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ and it's in that final phrase he'll bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ that we need to look at to see this work completed this is the culmination of the believer's confidence. The future 
completion of this good work. And right here and right now, as we anticipate its completion, it is therefore right now our confident hope and our expectation. It's what we look forward to. It's what we sing about. It's what's in our hearts for those who know Jesus. Paul uses the phrase, the day of Jesus Christ. It's what the Old Testament calls often the day of the Lord. The New Testament calls it the day of Christ, or here the day of Jesus Christ, or sometimes simply calls it the day, or that day. Let's look at a few passages just to get a flavor for what this day of the Lord is. We need to turn to just a It'll take a minute to find it, but a key passage that we need to look at because you need to know this passage for the future. It's Joel 2. Joel 2 is a a key passage for understanding end-time judgment, but also specifically the day of the Lord. Joel 2. You can table the contents it up. It's okay. We'll wait for you. Joel 2. Joel 2, just look at two verses, 1 and 2. Joel 2, 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Flip over one book to Amos. Amos chapter 5. It's the book right after Joel. Amos 5. Look at verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Look down at verse 20. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You see, these prophets and many others speak of a coming day of the Lord, this day of, you see these common words in both of these passages, of darkness and gloom. It's a day of judgment for the wicked, for those who do not know God. Now, this day of the Lord alludes to, at times in the prophets, judgment that would come in their own time, in the contemporary time of the prophets. Uh, But every time it spoke of a, a near judgment, it also spoke of and foreshadowed this ultimate or final day of the Lord that we see in Philippians 1 6. Now, the New Testament fills out this idea of the day of the Lord. Uh, Consider a few passages that might be familiar to you as we keep developing the flavor here, as we kind of mull over what is the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us of the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. Uh, This concept that we don't know when and it's going to come quickly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 is another key passage and it makes reference to the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we develop this idea of the day of the Lord, there is a judgment for the wicked, but there's also some sort of sustaining that the Lord Jesus Christ does for those who know Him. 
and in fact sustains them in what way? Guiltless in the day of Christ. Blameless, we see in other passages. And then later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, that passage, that chapter, shows us how each person's, uh, how each person's or believer's deeds are tested. It says there, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. That's 1 Corinthians. Uh, Turn to 2 Thessalonians 1 with me and see 2 Thessalonians 1 uh, concept of the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Just start in 5 for context. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Here in 2 Thessalonians 1, we see additional elements to this day of the Lord concept. There is relief for suffering saints. And then there is also worship. If you look at verses 9 and 10 especially, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, Jesus does. And so as we develop this idea here in Philippians 1.6, what we're saying Paul says here is based on the finished work of Christ, God is working in you, and this work is to be finished on the coming day of the Lord. You see, on the day of the Lord, God will bring those in whom he has begun that good work fully and finally to himself in glory. We will, in 2 Thessalonians 1 terms, by the work of God and by the grace of God, be assessed and confirmed and rewarded and considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And we will be granted relief from the afflictions of this life. And we will marvel at and glory in Jesus Christ our King. It's the glory of Christ in the glorification of the saints on that last day. Romans 8.30, it's one of my favorite verses, expresses the certainty of these things very simply. And and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As we consider Philippians 1, verse 6, I I want you to notice something. Flip back there, Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice Paul's goalposts here. He thinks of the coming day of the Lord as the consummation of history. 
He thinks of Jesus Christ returning, not of his own dying. He, he's working with a God-centered timeline that's, I think, different than ours. That time frame, that end marker in Paul's thinking is what instills in him such confident hope in God. It's, quite frankly, one of the big differences between his heart and our hearts. We think of seeing Jesus when we die, which is and would be true if you are in Christ. But we don't long for Christ's return nearly as much as we should because we want to accomplish all our hopes and dreams in this life. And Jesus coming back would cut that all off short. We'd rather be able to, of course, for the glory of God, of course, we'd rather graduate and diagnose and litigate and gain clearance for and design and prescribe and help and change and do. And amen and amen. And through our careers, God must be glorified. You must do what you do for the glory of God and that the gospel be known. Amen. But we have this insatiable appetite for this world and our accomplishment and our aspiration. We would rather stay in a world to which we are strangers and pilgrims than to be with Christ. We would rather in our hearts stay in this space in Philippians 1.6 where God is continuing the work he has begun than to actually see him finish that good work. And not not to be so. Catch Paul's heart here as he yearns for the consummation of all things and in that God's good work in the believer's life. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's glorious truth in this one verse in Philippians. And we need to catch Paul's heart as he, yearn, as he yearns for uh, the day of Jesus Christ and the finished work of Jesus then brought to be finished in the believer's life. On March 19th, 1882, the construction of the Sagrada Familia began. It's an epic, and I mean epic, Roman Catholic Church. You might know about it. The building project was taken over just a year later after it started by the famed Spanish architect, Antony Gaudí. And the Sagrada Familia has been slowly built, section by section, tower and spire by tower and spire. And all along throughout the years, it has become quite the tourist attraction with its gorgeous textures and lofty visual appeal. The Sagrada Familia still has not been finished. In fact, a large part of the church has been constructed without proper permits. Uh, in 2019, the La Sagrada Familia Foundation applied finally for a building license to the tune of $5.1 million. And with an estimated completion date of 2026, we'll see if this UNESCO World Heritage Site, 140 years into its construction, ever gets finished. 
It's truly a work in progress to challenge all works in progress. Friends, we have a propensity to doubt, to cast aspersion on slow-moving, impatience-inducing construction projects, whether it's the 405 or a giant old church building like the Sagrada Familia, we think of unfinished construction projects the way we think about our own growth and progress in the Christian life with this sort of lethargic doubt and cynical, critical sort of uncertainty. But when Christ returns, this continuing work of God in you will come to completion. Our confidence that God will finish what he started will be vindicated. What was started before the foundation of the world realized in your life at the point of salvation and continued all throughout life, including today, including this quarter, including this season that is called college, years and years of God's faithful and guiding hand, God tilling soil in your heart and growing you and challenging you and working in you and through you to abide and endure in steadfast hope fully and finally in eternity, completing this good work of gospel grace in you at the day of Jesus Christ. And as we anticipate that day, now, Philippians 1.6, gives us precious confidence. What shelter in times of storm? What help in time of need? What stable truth in changing seasons and shifting sands? 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 